Plundergrounds, episode 120. Call-ins about Into the Earth, Angry Red Planet, and Crawl Solo. Plundergrounds, Plundergrounds, welcome back to a brand new show. Ray's gonna take you where you didn't know you wanted to go. Fantasy and dungeon delve, science fiction, watch yourselves. Shaka Zamunda. <laughs> That's a pretty good impression, Roy. Thanks for that. That really took me back to the show Land of the Lost. Roy uh, sent a couple call-ins about my episodes where I talked about hacking into the odd for a Hollow Planet-style adventure game called Into the Earth. And here are segments three and four of what he called in. The fourth one is very quiet, so you may have to dial up your radio volume a little bit while you're listening to that segment and then uh, back down so you don't blast your eardrums out. Here we go. Hi, Ray. And hopefully this is my last post on Into the Earth. But uh, you mentioned, uh, I think you misspoke when you attributed Pellucidar to Ronnie Howard. I think you meant our other favorite author, Eddie Burroughs. Okay, Ray, this will be the last one on Land of the Lost. <laughs> this time for sure. I just wanted to tell you that you kind of inspired me to look a little more into this show. And uh, after reading Wikipedia, I was really impressed by how rich of a background they had written for this thing. So interesting. And I actually uh, looked up on YouTube, watched a couple of episodes, uh, one thing I did not remember is that crazy banjo at the beginning of the show. Oh, my God. Anyway, uh, take care. Keep up the good work. What are you talking about? I love that crazy banjo music. <laughs> great great theme song. <laughs> uh, yeah, I did abs- absolutely make a mistake when I attributed that to Robert E. Howard. Uh, I didn't even remember saying that. Till I went back and listened, and sure enough, I'd made that mistake. Uh, I think it's because the authors are referred to by their initials, R-E-H and E-R-B. Uh, but for whatever the reason, yeah, Pellucidar is Edgar Rice Burroughs through and through. It's a very Burroughsian-style adventure. And in fact, I think in Volume 7 of the Pellucidar series, Tarzan goes to the Hollow Earth. Uh, so he tries to do a bit of a crossover. And he even has in one of his novels, I don't remember if it's in the Pellucidar uh, series or not, um, they eventually start establishing radio contact. So David Ennis is calling John Carter or something like that. Uh, and so he does this bit uh, towards the ends of his books to try to kind of draw his universes together in, in kind of a cool way, but also in a very hammy way. Thanks for those call-ins. I really appreciate it. Yes, the Wikipedia article is quite a joy to read. The background to Land of the Lost for such a, I don't know, kind of a dumb show. Like if you watch it now, you think, well, this is really pretty cheesy. Um, They really had a pretty rich history back there, and it would make for a great role-playing game setting. Much much better role-playing game setting than a TV show, actually. Next, we're going to shift to call-ins about the Angry Red Planet, and first up is Aaron Clark. Hey, Ray, Aaron Clark. I just listened to your podcast about the Angry Red Planet. Thanks for sharing that. That, I'm going to have to look for that movie. Uh, And you asked for ideas about how to change the tone or the the setting or the feeling that the players have at the table, you know, in line with that angry red planet idea. 
you know, Samsung and Google make these smart light bulbs that you can operate with your mobile phone. And they have like a full range of colors. So you can change the colors around on those light bulbs might be one way to, to, to do that. The other thing I thought about was your space mask idea. And I'm not sure you're in California and some of the Asian ladies when they're driving in the summer wear these big sun visors. So maybe that's a good option for a space helmet. Anyway, um, happy new year. Uh, thanks for the podcast. I'll keep listening. Yeah, Aaron, I've actually been eyeballing those bulbs for a while. Um, they seem overpriced for what they are. I don't know, maybe not, but I, I can't quite justify the expense. May, maybe that's the uh, the little nudge I need to go over the hump and buy some is the idea of using them in role-playing games. That actually is a pretty cool way if you're in your home environment and have a game room where you could put those in. That would be a pretty neat thing to do. I got a lot of call-ins about Angry Red Planet. The idea really captivated a lot of people. I won't play them all, but there um, was a, a suggestions along the same line that I absolutely missed and I should have thought of right away with uh, trying to run this at a convention, and that had to do with goggles, right? Uh, some kind of mask or, or goggle or glasses that you would have the players put on when they go out into the, uh, uh, the wondrous and spooky and weird environment. And uh, Cody uh, from No Save For You mentioned the giant sunglasses they sell at like dollar stores uh, that are so awkward to put on your face and hold there and all that kind of stuff. And if you could get them red tinted, that would be even uh, better. Shay from Roleplay Rescue mentioned goggles. Uh, Goblin's Henchman brought up the old 3D glasses. Those would be nice and cheap and easy. Um, and they have the, the extra effect of making everything seem just a little bit um, uh, vibrant or like uh, vibrating, or I don't know how to say it, uh, just uh, slightly off, right? Um, and then uh, uh, Josh Beckelheimer called in to talk about maybe some kind of mask that would muffle the voice, uh, so like a ski mask or something that would extend over the mouth to make it harder for players to hear each other as well. I don't know if I would want to go that far because it might be just a little bit too disruptive, but I really like the idea of gloves and goggles because I really think that uh, portrays the primary obstacles when you're in a foreign environment and you have to wear things. So, you know, gloves keep you from operating your phone well. They would keep you from uh, picking up your dice and rolling them very well or writing things down easily. Um, and the red goggles would essentially serve as a constant visual reminder that you're in another environment um, and that it's unsafe and that you have to have gear uh, in order to survive there. Uh, I also like the mouth thing, covering up the mouth because of, of like breathing and stuff. But uh, like I said, I, I can't quite picture making uh, players try to shout at each other through their masks. <laughs> also, it might be a little hot in, in a convention room. But yeah, good idea too. So thank you for all of those great ideas. I really do want to run this game now. Um and probably do it on Mars or on Venus or something like that. Uh, I still think I'll probably build paper masks and put in uh, and buy acetate and put in the lenses. But if I decide to spend money instead of time, there's some $10 goggles on uh, e on Amazon that look pretty good. You know, the, they look like those steampunky round welding goggle kind of things. Um, and you can get them with red lenses. In fact, you can get ones that have different, uh, they screw on so you can put different lenses in them. And uh, that may be what I go for. Um, you know, for, for a party of five, 50 bucks, uh, you know, that's the cost of a Dungeon Master's Guide or something, right? Um, 
maybe it's a little high for a con game, but it might be worth it. Might be might be easier than and uh, more durable than making paper masks. So thanks for those ideas. I think that's really cool. Um, we are going to move on to calls about the solo crawl episode next. Hey Ray, Jason here. So one game from 1980 from Task Force Games was Valkenburg Castle. Valkenburg Castle was a fantasy game where you were basically trying to retake your castle from evil humans and monsters and whatnot. Um, it had an interesting mechanic about fighting between the levels because they'd move between levels. So you couldn't just like clear one level, move the next because they'd move back to the level you cleared and get behind you. It really was a two-player game, although they had nominal solo rules. I, I have to dig my copy out. I haven't looked at it for years. But if I remember right, the solo rules were, you know, consisted of either rolling or drawing chits for them to move randomly. So it wasn't really a good AI. So it wasn't really solo, but in theory it had solo, you know, adventures in there. Um, the interesting Vandenberg Castle has had rules for using modern soldiers with modern weapons fighting the orcs and clearing the castle, but I, I do think it's worth mentioning that game. Jason here, when they brought Blackmore to demonstrate for Gygax, Dungeon was also brought, the Dungeon board game. And while it wasn't, it's not sold and designed as a solo game, it's eminently soloable because it was specifically designed to eliminate PvP by the, just just the way the rules are and the way you're running around trying to get the treasure. And if you waste time on PvP, then you're going to lose because the person not fighting another player is going to get enough treasure and win, right? So I've played hundreds of hours of that game, you know, when I was a kid with two to four characters running through that dungeon trying to grab treasure. So not specifically designed as a solo game. So yeah, it kind of falls out of this, kind of like the other call I gave you, but it definitely was used solo by tons of people, including myself, and, and greatly enjoyed. Uh, can't believe I forgot Dungeon. It was in my notes, and I played it over the holiday break with my sons, uh, just because that was part of my explorations into this idea of dungeon crawling as uh, more of a board game-like act activity or solo activity, because there are solo rules, at least in the newest version of Dungeon, there are rules for playing it solo, and I tried that a couple of times. Uh, my favorite variant was you have a, a really nasty monster from down at the lowest levels who starts the game down on the low levels and as you move it moves uh, kind of every other turn and tries to hunt you out right and can go through secret doors and stuff it was very hard to play with that actually i ran into it a number of times and had to you know flee from it and then it would eventually uh kill me and i'd have to start over and uh, it was uh, enjoyable i don't know i mean but it was a neat idea for solo right and uh, I absolutely should have mentioned Dungeon because it was there at the beginning. Like the idea of dungeon crawling as a board game predates D&D. &D. You know, think about that for a moment. That's pretty cool. So thank you for calling that in. I've not heard of Alkenberg Castle, but I'll be looking into that one as well. And now we have one more call from Jason. Hey, Ray, Jason here. Just want to mention, you mentioned Warhammer Quest. I just want to call in. I realize it's a little bit late, but it if it doesn't get its own episode, I, I can understand, but Dun or Warhammer Quest is by far my favorite. Now, we're talking about the 90s version. It's by far my favorite dungeon crawl board game. It's a great game. It plays great solo, plays great co-op. It has role-play rules built in. The expansions are wonderful. The stuff in um, White Dwarf is wonderful. 
the new games, Game Workshop's putting out called Warhammer Quest, are not the spiritual ancestors of it. If you want to find a modern game that tries to capture Warhammer Quest, go to Shadows of Brimstone by Flying Frog Productions. But my vote for the best dungeon crawl board game that, you know, and solo game is still Warhammer, the original Warhammer Quest. Wow. I can tell that my explorations into this corner of the hobby are not going to be very wallet friendly. Uh, <laughs> I already have a big list of things that I want to explore. I'm trying to find, you know, like PDFs of rules and things like that to kind of, um, what, uh, you know, keep my, uh, keep my costs down. Uh, I built my own Citadel of Blood set and uh, probably cost me more than, or at least about as much as it, it would have cost me to buy a set off of eBay. No, that's not true. I think I probably spent $20 on making it, but uh, a lot of hours on making it. And uh, so that's not too bad. But yeah, I'm definitely going to be digging deep to buy some of these games. I've got a moratorium on buying books, but I think I can kind of intellectually sidestep that for board games, especially since they're research for one of my projects. And uh, so I'll at least be hunting down rule sets for some of these and then maybe uh, actual sets to play with and see how they go. And here's another couple titles brought to our attention by Barney of Loco Ludus. Hi there, Barney from Loco Ludus here. I really enjoyed your episode on the solo crawl. It's very good fun, very informative and interesting. I'm calling in to make the case for the inclusion of Hero Quest and Space Crusade. Um, these were Milton Bradley games with with the input of Games Workshop, and they came out before Games Workshop's advanced Hero Quest and Space Hulk. Um, why? Because I think they make a good bridge between the kind of fighting fantasy type thing and the more hardcore stuff. That is to say, they were they were widely available in the on the high street. They have miniatures. They have custom dice. They they make that GW Games Workshop IP. Uh, more consumer friendly i suppose simplify it um but above all they they have a a stripped down and basically well functioning rule systems um whereas advanced hero quest to my mind as a young person just became too overcomplicated um, the other thing I wanted to say is I'd love to hear more about what you think is really the important stuff about these hex crawls, perhaps even especially the the solo ones. That's all. That's all. See you. Excellent. Excellent call in, Barney. Thank you so much for telling me about those. I guess I kind of knew about Hero Quest. I didn't realize it came out before. Um, and I didn't know anything about the sort of predecessor to Space Hulk. So I'll be hunting those down and at least looking at the rules to see what I can get out of those and amending my little timeline 
the the ultimate form that I'm sort of keeping my notes in right now is in zine format. So I've been writing the intro to a little zine um, I, where I've put my rules that I've gotten so far together for my tile laying game and a little annotated bibliography uh, that tracks what I said in my podcast the other day, but is now corrected and um, uh uplifted what enhanced with ideas from other people and so i really appreciate your calling those in thanks hi ray mike shorten with dungeon master's handbook just got done uh listening to your uh dungeon crawl solo episode really really enjoyed it as a u.s based war gamer who regularly goes to events and conventions let me assure you that the idea of a referee is alive and well and very integral to doing war games and you might be thinking of games uh like warhammer and warhammer 40k that don't necessarily need a referee but for a lot of historical games um, a lot of staged games, um, a lot of games that use, you know, kind of like house rules. There are, there is still the concept of a referee. Would love to talk about it more, but I'm almost out of time. But just wanted to assure you, it's alive and well and very relevant. Loved your podcast. Talk to you later. Game on. Fantastic. Not only a first-time caller, but a bit of knowledge there that I didn't know already. It sounds like I need to get to a hardcore war game convention to see this in action myself. I'm glad to know that it is still a living tradition. And um, if we're going to be honest, uh, games of Warhammer 40K or um, other Warhammer type games may not need a referee, but I've seen a lot of them devolve into something that would have benefited from a referee. <laughs> including some of the ones that I've played in. So, uh, you know what? It's it's still a good idea, isn't it? And it's cool to know that it's alive and well. Next up, we have two call-ins that are uh, related to previous episodes, but um, not uh, in the Into the Earth, Angry Red Planet, or Solo Crawl uh, vein. So here we go. Hey, Ray. Love the poetry, but yeah, dark is right. <laughs> uh Poison Tree is fantastic. Uh, you didn't include one of his other most popular poems, Tiger, Tiger, one of my favorites. Yes, uh, Tiger, Tiger is perhaps Blake's best poem, certainly his most well-known poem, and people often quote a couple lines from it in various places just because it's so catchy and it's such a neat idea. Blake actually um, talked about lions and tigers in a number of poems, and there's a couple of his poems where lions are featured as a sort of divine presence that reminds me a lot of the way C.S. Lewis invokes the divine presence through Aslan in the Narnia Chronicles. And I, I always kind of wondered if C.S. Lewis didn't draw inspiration from Blake on that score. But one of the cool things about Tiger, Tiger as a poem is that the rhyme scheme is really tight for a while, but it's ruined at the end by one line, and it's ruined on purpose. And it's ruined in such a way that your brain wants to sort of force the rhyme. So you have, uh, I don't have the poem in front of me, but you're trying to rhyme I, the, the word I, uh, with the word symmetry. And when, you're, when you read off the word symmetry, either out loud or in your brain, you want to say symmetry, <laughs> just to make it rhyme. But of course you wouldn't do that. You'd say symmetry. You'd look like a fool if you said symmetry, I think. And, um, and because of that, 
very disturbing lack of completion, right? Like uh, your brain wants to complete that rhyme scheme. It is more memorable than if he had just done something kind of trite there. So I really like that. And I think it's a neat factor of the poem. And it, it's almost like music that ends on a, you know, shifts to a minor key right before it ends or something. Um, it It is very disturbing in a way. And thanks for bringing that one up. I actually didn't read it because um, Joe on the Hindsight List podcast had read it out loud on one of his episodes uh, not too long before that one that I did on Blake. And I kind of, for some reason, felt like I was stealing his thunder by reading that one out loud. So, um, and I figured most people knew that one. So I went on to others. But yeah, thanks for bringing that to our attention. Hey, Ray. Lonely adventurer from Camping with Owlbears here. I wanted to get in the habit of calling in, even though I'm only about 40 episodes into your podcast, so that when I eventually catch up and your podcasting presence ceases to be my podcasting future, I might have something relevant to add to the conversation. I find hearing your creative process laid out and the thoughtful comments uh, of those who call in, especially Spike Pitt, that man is an international treasure, uh, get my own creative juices flowing. And uh, they inspire me to create and make my own games more interesting. Uh, I think that's it for now. Keep on podcasting and you know what to watch out for. Thank you for calling in. It's so cool to hear from somebody that I didn't know before that's listening to the podcast. It's really gratifying. Um, So uh, it's important to reach out, and I appreciate that you did that. And I got to say, Camping with Owlbears is probably the most kick-ass podcast title I've heard since Keep Off the Borderlands. And uh, if if that is indeed a podcast, I'm going to hunt it up right now and start listening to it. So well done, you. And... um, I don't know. I don't know about international treasure on Spike Pit. I mean, yes, he is one. Yes, he's amazing. Yes, his ideas are great fun, and I love his accent. And he's a down-to-earth guy, kind of guy you want to have a pint with, you know, down at the local pub. But um, am I really going to broadcast that? I mean, his head is going to be so big for the next week he won't be able to walk through doorways. <laughs> but he is very cool, and I'm glad you listened to him as well. We actually had a little bit of another. Um, cross podcast where we talked for about an hour and a half the other day and um, I tossed them over to him to divide into three uh, and put in his podcast so you may enjoy those and I do think it's important to talk about the creative process so I appreciate you saying that because there are times when I externalize some of my creative stuff that it feels a little indulgent right and I don't know who's interested in hearing it but I find it personally fascinating to listen to people's creative processes especially when they tell me about challenges that they have overcome or intend to overcome or have plans for overcoming. I I think it's less helpful when somebody mentions challenges as an excuse to why they've, they're dead in the water and probably won't go back to something. Um, Just because that, I mean, that's not really helpful. I sympathize, but it's not really helpful. Um, But I also just like to hear the way people attack problems. And uh, so, yeah, I'm glad you like that. And I'll, you know, probably continue to do that because it's just what occupies a good portion of my brain a lot of the time. I create to... Uh, to relieve stress, I create to solve problems uh, because I like solving problems. It's my form of Sudoku or whatever, if you will. And um, I love to talk about it. So 
All right, that's it for the episode. Thank you, everyone, for calling in and uh, for making this episode possible. You can find links to my stuff at rayotis.com. And big thanks to Logan Howard, who does my opening theme song and the Swordbreaker zine and podcast. Until next time, look out for those rust monsters. Don't let them get you. Uh, don't let them eat all your stuff. Uh, don't let them stalk you and jump on you when you're unaware. Keep them at bay, right? you gotta keep. You got to stay loose. You don't want to rust up.